Okay, I'm going to just say this from the top, and I would like for you to repeat after I say it. Ogres are like onions. Ogres are like onions. Who knows what that's from? Shrek, right? So the original Shrek, I, the other ones I'm sure are fine, but the original Shrek is one of my favorite kids' movies. And that line, if you're not familiar with it, is said by Shrek, who is an ogre. It is, it's him declaring something about himself. He says, ogres are like onions. And who does he say it to? Anybody remember? Donkey, who's voiced by Eddie Murphy, who might be one of the funniest characters in any kid's movie ever. If you listen to his humor, it's just like, it, it's so amazing. Ogres are like onions. And what he's trying to say to Donkey is they're on this adventure, they're on this journey, and Shrek is saying, I'm more complicated than you think. He, Donkey thinks that, you know, Shrek is this mean, you know, sort of belligerent, stinky creature, which he is. But Shrek is saying to him, like, hey, I have a heart. Like, there, there are things about me that you may not understand. And it's sort of like this crux moment in their relationship. Ogres are like onions. They have layers. They're complicated. Human beings aren't that much different. Now, I would not call any one of you an ogre to your face. But there are layers to people. And one of the things we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, I'm going to come down here to the easel to kind of help explain this, is that there are parts to every person, and God has made us this way. Our senior pastor, Richard, explained this uh, in his sermon a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just going to remind us of this. Remember, ogres are like onions. People are like onions. We have layers. And so what we've been talking about, and we've not been talking about this super heavy-handed here because I've tried to slow walk this out because it's been really hard for me. At the very center of who you are is your spirit. And the Bible talks about this. Kind of our guiding passages for this are like 1 Corinthians 5 and then, uh, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5 and then 2 Corinthians 2.18. Your spirit is that deep-seated part of you that is being transformed by Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes into your life, his spirit kind of takes over in the middle of who you are. And your spirit is things like your gifts, your confidence in your calling, It's all of these things that I try to think about as like, what's carrying you forward in life? That's your spirit. Those are the things that make up who you are, and that's leading you into the future that God wants for you. The next kind of part of you is your soul. And your soul, if the spirit is kind of forward-focused, the soul is backward-focused. The soul is, what's your history? Like, what's your family of origin? What are the things that have kind of been a part of your life for good or for ill that have shaped who you are today? We're going to be talking a lot about the soul today, and the soul can often be the place where we really get stuck. The last part of who you are, every person has this, is their body. Okay, so spirit and then soul and then body. Your body is the external expression of what's happening in your soul and in your spirit. And it's not just like, you know, your body, like you have a certain hair color and eye color. It's the way that you interact with other people. It's the way that God is presenting the work that he's doing in your life externally so that other people can see it. This is where it comes up to the surface. And the goal of this sermon series, the goal that we believe God has hardwired into people, is for Christ to come into our hearts and then his work radiates outward and transforms our body and our souls. As our spirit increasingly comes into alignment with Christ's spirit, so is it reflected in our souls and the way that God redeems our stories, and so is it reflected in the way that we treat other people outwardly, the way that our bodies engage with the world. 
I've been studying this for weeks and weeks and weeks. It is a head turner for me, so please don't feel like if you're sitting there and this just blew you by, it's like you're not a bad person. Like this has been hard for everyone on the teaching team, okay? This is the framework that we're going to be using as we talk over the next couple weeks. And my pathway through this has been to try to find stories. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jacob. Remember that, ser- that sermon, if you were here? Jacob, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, and how his spirit needed to come in line with what God's spirit wanted to do in his life. Today, we're talking about one of Jacob's sons, a man named Judah. And if you don't remember Judah from your Sunday school and your flannel graph, that's okay. I didn't either, and we'll do a review of that. Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. And we're going to look at three really quick windows into Judah's life. And this is outlined in your bulletin in front of you. And the first thing we're going to talk about is how he's, foundationally, he's a broken person. Like, if you have this idea in your head that all the people in the Bible were somehow perfect and they walked on water, although one of them did, they were not at all. This is a very broken story. So we're going to start with Judah's brokenness. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to stay in the book of Genesis this whole time. Genesis 37 is where we're going to begin. And I want to set up kind of where we're going with this with a little family tree. So let's have that family tree up on the screen, please. I know these words are a little hard to read, but look at the bold print. This is where Judah comes from. So Judah's great-granddaddy was Abraham. Right? Abraham, the father of many nations, Genesis 12, he receives this promise from God, you will be a blessing. You need to remember that. Then it goes down to Isaac, remember the son that Abraham was instructed to sacrifice and they're saved at the last minute. And then Isaac, one of his sons, is Jacob. This lineage is a lineage of blessing from God. Like if there was a family motto that could hang over this family, it's that God takes care of this family. Through this family, God wants to do amazing things in the world. And someone might be thinking, like, what makes this family so special? Like, why would God choose to do special things through them? You can go ahead and take that down, Jesse. Thank you. The answer is nothing. This family is a great example of God's grace. They did nothing to earn or deserve God blessing them, God caring for them. God, out of grace, said to Abraham, I choose you. And through you, I'm going to do amazing things in the world. So we need to remember this because Judah's lineage is really important, but it's also complicating where he is right now. So Judah is a brother to a famous person uh, in the scriptures. His name's Joseph. He had a musical written about him. Anybody remember the name? Joseph and the Magic Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? Thank you. At least one person has seen it. Joseph is the one that gets a lot of press because he does have this amazing story. He's kind of the favorite son. He's not kind of the favorite son. He is the favorite son. There are 12 brothers in this family, which means there are a lot of holes punched in the walls in their houses. And Judah is a brother to Joseph, and he becomes the de facto leader and speaker on behalf of all the other brothers that don't like Joseph. How many of you have a family where this happened too, right? There was enough division between the siblings that one of you kind of became the spokesperson and that was just how it was going to go. So Joseph is his dad's favorite. He has this beautiful coat. He's got it all. His brothers, this resentment toward him becomes stronger and stronger. And finally, we zoom in on this in Genesis 37. They decide to take a very you know, humane and generous approach to Joseph and they throw him in a pit. They, they literally just throw him into a pit. And they're sitting around, as brothers do, and they're talking about what they just did, going like, wow, did we just do that? It's lunchtime, so they're probably having a healthy lunch of beef jerky and Mountain Dew. 
And Joseph is just sitting there in the pit waiting for them to decide what to do. And if you want to bring up your Bibles or open up your Bible app, this is Genesis 37. This is one of the first times we really hear from Judah. And pay attention to how he talks about his brother. Starting in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traitors. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern, pulled him out of the pit, sold and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Now, we're going to leave Joseph's story for just a minute. He goes off to Egypt. We'll come back to that. But what did we just learn about Judah? What did we just see in that very brief exchange? We see a couple things. One, we see Judah as a leader. He has the gift of leadership. He gets an angry mob of his brothers to agree to a different plan. Did you catch that? Like, his brothers are all set on killing their, their brother Joseph, and Judah says, wait, 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 hold on. Let's rethink this plan. He has a voice. He uses it. He's probably just as mad at Joseph as they are, but he says, no, let's not kill him. He's also self-aware. He's the one that says, if we murder him, we're going to have to do a cover-up. Do we really want to have to do a cover-up? Honestly, that's one of the most dangerous things about Judah. He's just self-aware enough to realize how he could get away with things. Finally, we recognize that Judah has some loyalty. He says, Joseph is our own flesh and blood. Now, where's this wonderful note of grace coming from? As we'll see as we look through uh, Judah's story, I don't think he actually is very concerned for Joseph. He's more concerned for his father. He's more concerned for Jacob. He knows that if anything happens to Joseph, his father will be crushed because this is his favorite. This is his beloved. And so I think what hatches in Judah's mind in this moment, and maybe we've done this too in our lives, he hatches a plan to protect someone he loves. He hatches a plan to protect his father and says, well, if we just outright kill Joseph, that's going to crush Jacob. That's going to crush our dad. He's old. Like, let's not, stay, let's not put this on him. This will be really, really hard. So let's create a narrative. Let's create some story where he just magically disappears. Well, unfortunately, his brothers decide that they still want to make it look like that Joseph died. So you might remember this. They take the magic technicolor dream coat and they dip it in the animal's blood and they take it to their father, Jacob, and they say, we're sorry, dad. It looks like Joseph, your favorite, got eaten by animals. He's, he's gone. We're sorry. Their deception achieves the thing that Judah didn't want. This is the first time we see Judah fail miserably. He's unable to protect his father from the emotions of losing his son. He can't do it. Have you had that experience where you failed someone that you live with, someone that you're close to? How often do, do you have that tape playing in your head like, oh yeah, I, I messed that up, that's right. It's not like we can just snap our fingers and get over this. This is a deep-seated thing that we're going to have to pay attention to as we keep going through Judah's story. So Joseph is off to Egypt. Now we're on to part two where we talk about Judah's wake-up call. Joseph's off to Egypt. He's going to have a very interesting story that we'll come back to in just a little while. Meanwhile, Jacob, the father, is being tormented right now by his grief. He is so brokenhearted over the loss of Joseph. Judah knows the truth, but he knows that old adage that nobody talks and everybody walks. 
So he keeps it quiet. He has to witness his father's mourning and he says nothing, even though he knows the truth. Judah goes home. Like, what do you do after something terrible happens? What do you do after your heart breaks? Well, eventually you got to go back to work. You got to go to the grocery store. You got to get back to normal life. So that's what Judah does. And think about this. Think about the guilt and the failure and the remorse that's kind of swirling in his soul during this time. And he knows he's partially responsible for the pain that his dad is feeling. So he goes back to life as usual. The text tells us, Genesis 38, he marries a woman and they have two sons. Now, normally, these are very good steps to take, especially in the ancient Near East. Men, this was a patriarchal society, were responsible for fathering sons. Because sons could continue the family lineage. Sons were this and sons were that. This was not a time where women were really valued or treated as equals by any means. So Judah is kind of on his way to achieving this goal of being successful. Having a successful family. Having a successful life. Does that sound familiar, church? And then what happens? Well, it turns out, the scriptures tell us this, both of the sons that are born to him are evil. Like the word evil is literally used to describe them. Woe to you if the Bible refers to you as evil. (laughs) Like that's pretty bad. And the sons are so evil that they actually both die. They die. Before they die, each of them is married to the same woman. I know it's weird. This was part of how culture worked at the time. We see this as weird. Both sons are married to a woman named Tamar. And Tamar cannot get pregnant by either son. And that's a big problem for her because in this culture, that's what was valued. Go and have sons. Okay, that's not working. Well, then we need to talk about that. Judah says to Tamar, after both of her, his sons, her former husbands have died, listen, you got to wait until my youngest son is old enough to marry you, and then we'll try this son thing again. This is a terrible plan for Tamar, by the way. Like, hang out until some kid is old enough to marry you? Like, this is awful. But this was the cultural norm at the time because sons were so valued. So then Tamar goes off to wait. Judah is waiting for his youngest son to get old enough. And while Judah is waiting, his wife dies. So think about this just in terms of their family. There has been a lot of death in their family. He's lost both of his sons. And as a parent, I really can't fathom that. But some of you can. As a husband, he's lost his wife. And I know there are people in this room who've been through that experience. He's hurting. He's broken. There's no more hope for him other than Tamar. That is the last hope for there to be sons, for him to be a successful father. And so if we were just to take a quick snapshot of Judah's soul, what's he feeling right now? He's feeling guilt over deceiving his dad and seeing him in his agony. He's failed to prevent his dad from suffering. He's lonely. His wife and sons are gone. Think about walking through an empty home with all those memories of the people you used to love and they're gone. Combine this with Judah's demonstrated ability to calibrate and aim at the optics. In other words, he cares about how people see him. And so in secrecy, he makes a very, very bad decision. And this is where, for any of us, taking stock of what's in your soul, AA puts this so well. Take a ruthless moral inventory. That's why these practices are so valuable. Our souls can often become like a dumpster behind your office building. 
You only throw so much garbage into that dumpster before it starts to overflow, and then it's no good to anybody. Our souls can often become like that. And our God desires to help us lift up that garbage and get it out, your sense of failure, your sense of guilt, whatever it is, but we can't do it by ourselves. Judah's soul right now is an overflowing dumpster. And so he makes an awful choice. He goes and finds a prostitute. And I recognize there's some kids in the room. I'm not going to get into graphic details around this. But he's out at work. His family flocks. He's out tending the family flocks. He sees a woman. He goes and has a conversation with her. She's veiled. She can't see who she is. And he propositions her. And he says, I agree to pay you. And she says, you're going to pay me with what? And he says, I don't actually have any money right now. And she says, you've got to be kidding me. So he gives her the equivalent of his business card. It's an IOU. He gives her his walking stick and then a special seal that he would have carried to mark his family crest on letters and on documentation and that kind of thing. He literally gives her his form of identification and says, I'll pay you back. And so they sleep together and they both go on their way. And when we get far enough down the road, when there's that much garbage in our souls, this is what happens. This is what happens. And so guess who that prostitute was? It was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. She figured out where he was going. She has this mandate hanging over her. Maybe it, was, maybe it was under penalty of death. You have got to go and have sons or else. Maybe she's taking that so seriously that she takes matters in her own hands. She disguises herself. She figures out where Judah is going to be. She has this encounter with him. And now she's pregnant. And she does what she's been mandated to do. And Judah thinks this is all done in secret, but it's never really done in secret, is it? Turn with me to Genesis 38. Just one chapter over in verse 24. The text says this, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute. And now, because of this, she's pregnant. And this next line, I want you to hear the indignation, the self-righteousness in this, because we all know this when we've had one of our secrets uncovered. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Hey, I have this business card. Do you know this guy? You ever heard this name before? Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. To hear the gravity of this moment, she is more righteous than I. That is the really one and only admission of guilt that we get in the life of Judah. She is more righteous than I. And this is a huge admission. In his culture, in this time, Judah was responsible for leading his family. He was responsible for being an example to his wife and his children. He was responsible for helping his family understand that the God of the universe loves them and has given them a calling to a particular way of life. Well, he blew it. His daughter-in-law, Tamar, she understands righteousness more than I do. She is more righteous than I. The male head of the household does not admit to things like this. 
And what's the phrase that's kind of percolating in his mind as he says this? As she holds out these things that could only have been his. What's the thought? And we've all had this thought, and it's a terrible thought. The thought is, I failed again. I failed again. When's the last time you had a sequence of failures? When's the last time you you got into a conversation with someone and it kind of got heated and you said something you regret and you walked away and you're just kicking yourself going, I failed again. I did that thing that I swore I would never do again. I did it. I fought with so-and-so. I said such-and-such. I made promises or I said grand generalizing statements like you never and I never and blah, blah, blah. It's the worst. I failed again. And it's especially the worst for Judah because think about what's in his dumpster. A lot of junk. A lot of junk. But thankfully, this is his rock bottom. If you've walked with people through addiction, sometimes they have to hit rock bottom. Often they do. And there's a part of you that goes, okay, I'm sad for you, but I'm kind of glad too. I think that's a good way to feel about, jo- about Judah in this situation. We're sad that he has to face this, but this is where the ship can finally start sailing the right way. This is the last section we're going to talk about, transformed soul. So Judah is broken. Meanwhile, his brother Joseph is off living the high life in Pharaoh's household. He's been appointed a governor of Egypt. Well, governors in Egypt are in charge of things like trade and food, And when a famine hits all of the land, Judah and his family are starving, and unbeknownst to them, their not-dead brother is in charge of a lot of food in Egypt. So Judah leads his brothers, again, remember, he has the gift of leadership, to ask for help. They don't recognize that it's Joseph. They assume he's dead. And so there's this back and forth, kind of through the last few chapters of Genesis, where they're asking for help, and Joseph, for whatever reason, is kind of playing coy with them. He's actually mean to them at times. And at one point, Joseph says to them, all right, look, you guys need to go off for a little while. I'm going to think about how I'm going to help you. I can't decide if I should give you food or not. So they send, he sends them away, you know, leave. And as they do, he has one of his assistants slip a silver cup into their belongings. And the silver cup is a cup that only belongs to the Egyptian governor. So he's making it look like they stole from him. And the cup lands in the sack of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And when they come back to the palace to renegotiate with Joseph, they still don't know it's Joseph. They look through their stuff and, hey, did you steal this cup? Did you take from us? Did you try to steal from the mighty nation of Egypt? And so what Joseph says to them, and this is just terrifying, he says to them, you're going to have to leave your brother here as my slave. That's your punishment for trying to steal from me. Now, is he trying to like break his brothers down? Is he kind of, you know, getting a little revenge and grinding on them a little bit? I'm not sure. But what happens in this moment is the powerful moment of transformation for Judah and for really the whole story. Turn with me to Genesis 44. Judah hears this terrible mandate from Joseph. He says, you're going to have to leave your youngest brother with me. That's your punishment. And then here's what the scriptures say. This is Judah taking on that mantle of leadership. He says, and now my Lord, he refers to Joseph as my Lord. I cannot go back to my father without the boy, without Benjamin. Listen to this line. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. 
Who says that? Does a callous, manipulative person say that? Or does someone who understands how crushing this would be say something like that out of love? He goes on, if he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. I think that's a compliment. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if this boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. How does Judah know this? Because he's watched his father's anguish. And he knew he played a part in it. And you can just hear the guilt. You can hear the shame that's just under the surface in his voice. Our father's life is bound up with this boy's life. Don't do it. Don't take him. Don't make my father go through that hurt again. Don't do it. And so what have we seen? Earlier, this man, Judah, who's all a fuss about his own image, and and no, we shouldn't murder him because we don't want to have to do the cover-up, all of that is gone. His self-awareness for selfish gain is ended. And his soul, something has happened to his soul. Because remember, we talked about this earlier. Your past and your history are kind of residing in your soul. It's the patterns and ruts that we so often fall into. The patterns that he has fallen into of deception and betrayal, those have all left him so empty and so broken. He's not doing it anymore. He's not bringing another piece of bad news back to his father. He's not going to let Benjamin go. And this is where we actually see a Christ-like moment in this story. Because greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Judah lives into that long before Jesus comes on the scene. And something amazing happens. Not because Judah has been perfect in this, not because he's going to be like Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of a Christmas carol and be joyful and perfect. No. What happens is that there is finally reconciliation between the brothers. Because right after this, right after this speech, is the moment when Joseph says, I can't take it anymore, I have to tell you guys who I really am. And he reveals his true identity, and they're reconciled. Remember that great passage in Genesis 50? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is the fruit. This is the soil out of which that fruit could grow. So Judah stands up. He uses his leadership in the right way. He stands in Benjamin's place as one did for each of us on the cross. And Joseph gives up the charade. And Judah frees Benjamin. And Benjamin goes home. And this is so beautiful. At the end of Jacob's life, at the end of their father's life, he gets to choose who to bestow his blessing upon, his dying blessing. And guess who it is? It's Judah. It's Judah. It comes full circle for him. And even more than that, we know when we read Matthew chapter 1, from this line, from this very family, is the family of Jesus. The family of Jesus comes through the house and line of Judah. So how do we respond to this? What does the story of Judah say to me? How has it resided in my heart? One thing I know for sure after reading this story, God is in charge. 
God is in charge. He could never, Judah could never have scripted this plan for his life. And if we're honest, could any of us really and truly have scripted the plan that brought us here today? Honestly? We'd like to think that we had some control. We said yes at the right time. My friends, God has brought you here. And if you're in a moment like Judah, if you are feeling the weight of the things that he was feeling, the God that has brought you there will carry you faithfully through it. Amen? God loves us too much to leave us as he found us. That's another thing that stands out to me from this passage. Think about the, the Judah that we meet at the beginning, who's willing to throw his brother into a pit and then sit there and think about how to best murder him or not murder him. We go from that man to a man who stands in the court of a king and says, do not take my brother. Don't do it. The courage, the transformation, the willingness to be sacrificial for the sake of another, that's evidence of a transformed soul. This is not the route that Judah would have picked. That's another thing that stands out to me. We've all had this happen to us. There's an event, there's something that occurs, and we go, man, I would never have picked that, but when I look back on it, God has done this, this, and this in my life, and I'm so grateful. I would never have picked for my own life that I would lose my dad in August of last year when he was 63 years old. I would never have picked that. Never. But the fruit of that in my life, just in the short period of time since then, I feel like God has taken good care of me. I feel a sense of gentleness that maybe wasn't closely there for me before. I feel a renewed sense of call. I feel like there's wind in my sails. And I would never have picked that route. But that's what was given. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Finally, the brokenness in Judah should say to all of us, God will use you. And your brokenness will not stop his work. The brokenness in your family will not stop his work. The ways that you have struggled, the ways that you have failed as a parent, as a spouse, as a neighbor, as a friend, if you tell yourself those things are too big, then your God is too small. And the God that we have been reading about today, he is so much bigger than your failure or my failure. You don't have to opt out because you feel like a failure. You don't have to step away from those hard conversations or step away from being a part of the life of a church or a small group because you think, oh, no, if people really knew me, they wouldn't want to be in fellowship with me. Well, I would say that's the enemy telling you that, and I hope you don't listen because the story of Judah is so good that it must be true because it's the story of someone's soul being transformed, and that is possible for each of us and for the people that we love. So we're going to respond now to this word of hope, this word of grace, by coming to the table. And so I'm going to invite those who are serving communion to come and join me up here. And the reason this is an appropriate response to what we've just heard is this is a table of grace. No one walks up to this table because they got everything right this week. Nobody convenes at the table of Jesus Christ because they have somehow perfectly aligned all the stars so that they deserve to be here. Instead, this is a gift. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to receive the gift of bread and juice this morning, I invite you to come. As we step into this moment together, please join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts. 
Jesus, we're thankful for this time at the table. We see your hand in the life of Judah, and we're so grateful. And we can't possibly come to the table thinking that we have deserved this or earned this, or this is just what we should do. This is what you are doing in us and through us. So God, set apart these simple elements of bread and juice and crackers. And more than just food or drink, may they be nourishment for our souls. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples and he broke a loaf of bread. And he offered it to them. That was their meal. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. In the same manner, after supper, because it was the Passover, they would have shared a cup together. It would have been a powerful and intimate moment among friends, among disciples. And the cup that was offered, Jesus said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Eat and drink. The Apostle Paul later reminds us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim with our bodies the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes again. And it is a privilege, and it is a gift, and it is all grace. So as you are prayerfully ready to do so, I invite you to come to this table. As is our tradition here at Bethany, you come down the center aisle and then head back to your seats along the side. These two uh, folks will be up here to serve you the juice and the uh, crackers. Uh, We have gluten-free crackers available. We want to make sure that anybody who has any allergy concerns can participate. Please come forward. Take the cup. Drink it as you're ready. Take the, the cracker back with you to your seat, and in a moment, or excuse me, take the bread when you're ready. Please go ahead and eat the cracker when you're ready, but save the cup, because at the end we will drink the cup together. Let us come to the table that Christ has prepared for his people.